Hi, good evening and welcome to tonight's edition of Resistance TV. My name is Sean and I'll be the host this evening. And tonight we've got our resident academic with us, Rod Driver. And tonight Rod's going to be talking to us um, about um, how the powerful international organisations are used to manipulate us. And the focus will be on the World Bank, the IMF, which is the um, um, in International Money Monetary Foundation, sorry, getting a bit tongue-tied there, and the World Trade Organization. But we'll also be discussing the current role of NATO and the World Health Organization. So good evening, Rod. How are you? Sorry, Sharon, we've just lost Rod. <laughs> oh dear. Right, okay. So last time Rod was on, we were talking about um the COVID pandemic. And um, a few of your, our viewers did get a little bit upset with, with uh, some of the controversial things that we were discussing uh, during that show. Um, we totally understand how people would be um, upset about that if they've had relatives who have passed away due to COVID or they've had uh, relatives who are have been seriously ill with long COVID, etc. We're not saying that COVID doesn't exist. Obviously, it does. Um, but there are discussions and debates to be had around the way that the pandemic was handled. Um, so I'm hoping Rod will be able to come back to us very shortly. Just bear with me, there's all sorts of things going on here. Okay, so Gaz, do we have an update on Rod? No, his drivers, his devices just are not connected. Just reconnecting, it won't be a minute. Okay, right, I'm going to have to plan for these issues, aren't I, in future? That'll teach me. Um, so have we got anybody in the chat this evening? If you let us know, if you're here, uh, where are you from? And um, if you're new to the channel, please let us know. And um, if you'd like to give us, a oh, I'll give you a sing song, Kevin, but I'm not sure whether you'd like my voice. <laughs> um, give us a like whilst we're waiting for Rod to come back on. Um, click that thumbs up button. If you're, hi Shirley, thanks for your support this evening. And um, if you can, uh, if you're you're new to the show, subscribe and click the notification bell, and that will tell you when we're going live. So, <clears throat> as you probably saw, uh, Chris was back with us week before last, and he's hoping to be back with us again next week. So we're looking forward to that, and uh, we've already got guests lined up for that. Um, hi, John Atcher, UK in the house. Hi, nice to to join us. Hi, Rod. Hi, finally got what my camera and microphone working. Well, I sometimes think it's just an old computer. Sometimes I think they're MI6 are trying to interfere oh, with the gremlins, the gremlins. Oh, so, I was having kittens then thinking, I'm going to have to waffle for an hour, <laughs> do a little dance. <laughs> oh, no, he's frozen again. No, he's not. Fingers crossed that uh, from now on, uh, things will go smoothly. Everything so I haven't heard anything you've said. So have you done the well, introduction? I've, yes, I've done the introduction. I've said you're going to be talking uh, about various organisations. So it's I'm going to hand it over to you now, Rod. OK, thanks very much. So apologies to, uh, to everybody watching and listening. 
Uh, we occasionally get these glitches, but fingers crossed it'll go smoothly from uh, now on. So today we're going to talk about international organizations. Now, in the past, when I talked about um, this, I focused very much on trade organizations like the World Trade Organization or the WTO. And then there's two financial organizations called the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund or IMF. But I'm also going to talk a little bit about uh, NATO and about the World Health Organization because they are becoming more and more important in uh, ongoing discussions at the moment. So I came across this great quote by um, Michael Hudson, who's a very good uh, economist who is, I think, probably understands the way the global economic system works probably better than anybody else. And he wrote, the purpose of a military conquest is to take control of foreign economies, to take control of their land and impose tribute. The genius of the World Bank was to recognize that it's not necessary to occupy a country in order to impose tribute or to take over its industry, agriculture and land. Instead of bullets, it uses financial maneuvering. As long as other countries play an artificial economic game that US diplomacy can control, finance is able to achieve today what used to require bombing and loss of life by soldiers. So if we go back in time to uh, towards the end of uh, World War II, so 1944, there's a very important meeting between uh, primarily between the leaders of Britain and America, a place called Bretton Woods, where they worked out what the future economic system would look like. And they created the IMF and the predecessor to the World Bank. Um, so they created the IMF, the World Bank, and the predecessor to the WTO, which used to be known as GATT. Now, originally, they had slightly different purposes. So I'm going to talk, first of all, about the IMF and the World Bank. So the IMF is known as the lender of last resort. So if a government gets into trouble financially, in theory, the IMF can step in and help them out financially. And then the World Bank was intended to have a slightly different purpose, which was loans for development. Now, over time, those purposes have sort of expanded and overlapped and so on, but those are still their primary purpose. Now, if you read a standard economics textbook or talk to mainstream economists, they will say, oh, these institutions are very positive. They're there to make sure the international financial system is stable and they're to help everybody. But in fact, once you start scratching below the surface, you realize this is not true. They are really tools of the US government to help them structure the economies of other countries in a way that works for America and for American companies. So if you look at who has been the head of the World Bank, uh, the one or two interesting names crop up. So the first one was a guy called John McCloy. Well, he was the, the US Assistant Secretary of State for War between 1941 and 1945. So he's a, a US uh, sort of military politician, if you like. And then later on, very famously, the World Bank was headed by a guy called Paul Wolfowitz, again, another American, and he became notorious for supporting the Indonesian dictator Suharto whilst he was committing uh, genocide in Indonesia. So you start to realise that actually, if you have these organisations run by senior people from the US establishment, they will run them in a way that benefits Americans. One of the things people have noted over the years is that whenever these organizations make loans, 
they attach very strong conditions to those loans. Now, we've actually talked about the economic policies uh, that come along with these loans in the past. So they are privatization, deregulation, removing controls on the movement of money and austerity. And of course, some people will be familiar with the term austerity because we suffered from it quite a lot uh, after the financial crisis in 2008. So when Michael Hudson writes about the World Bank, he's pointed out that most of their loans are not to help a country develop something like food security, where it grows food for its own people, but it actually grows crops for export. But the problem with doing this is that you require land to grow those export crops on. And often that, that means removing the crops that were used in the first place to provide food uh, for the nation. And so, in fact, food security decreases when many of these countries receive loans from the World Bank to grow export crops. Now, these conditions with loans have been applied to over 100 countries. And overwhelmingly, in the vast majority of countries, the outcomes have been disastrous. And in fact, some countries nicknamed the IMF I am fired because so many people lose their jobs because of these conditionalities. So some of you will be aware that in the 1990s, there were problems in Yugoslavia and also in Rwanda, where there was uh, mass slaughter. But what most people are not told when they're watching the mainstream news is that both Rwanda and Yugoslavia had been completely ravaged economically by IMF conditions, which were intended to devastate the economy, but restructure it for the benefit of companies from advanced nations. Now, interestingly enough, the IMF and the World Bank are big enough that they have lots of different departments. And often their own research staff will come up with a completely different conclusion from the people who actually enforce the policies. So over and over again, researchers at the World Bank have said that their own policies will cause civil unrest because they cause so much harm to poor people. And many staff at the IMF have openly disagreed with the policies being implemented by their, body, by their bosses. And the other thing that researchers have noted is that the most successful countries, so if you look at China more recently, uh, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, and also countries like Malaysia, that they have done policies that are very different from what the IMF and the World Bank recommend. In particular, they have retained control on money. Now, various insiders from these organizations have come forward and told us about what's really going on uh, after they stopped working for them. So one insider from the World Bank said, everything we did from 1983 onwards was based on our new sense of mission to have the South privatized or die. Towards this end, we created economic bedlam in Latin America and Africa between 1983 and 1988. And then other researchers have admitted that at meetings in 2002, remember this is just the year after the 9-11 attacks, World Bank officials met up with American government officials and the US told the World Bank that they are simply a tool to enforce privatization in other countries. So you start to realize that this is not about helping poor countries. This is about forcing them to restructure their economies to benefit primarily America, but also other advanced nations. And in fact, even the US Treasury has admitted that the World Bank 
is an institution solidly dominated by the United States, faithfully promoting not only strategic US economic goals, but short-term political objectives as well. And there's a great book, if anybody ever wants to find out more about this, there's a great book by a guy called John Perkins, who used to be an insider in the IMF. And he wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And in fact, there's a new version of that. And that has uh, immense amounts of detail about case study after case study, where people from the IMF went and lied to governments in developing countries about the benefits of the policies that they were imposing, knowing full well that actually the, the country would be harmed by these policies. Now, these organizations have immense power. So, for example, a few years ago, before the South Korean presidential elections, all four candidates had to agree before the elections that if they were elected, they would enforce IMF policies. So you start to realize that democracy ceases to have any meaning if these international organizations can, can simply tell all candidates what to do. Now, for the last 20 years, various countries have been trying to escape the clutches uh, of the IMF. So in 2003, Thailand revoked all the laws that had been introduced because of IMF uh, conditions. In, uh, in 2020, there were mass protests in Costa Rica about these policies, and the protests were, were so successful that it forced the government to backtrack on the policy changes. And Argentina has been a really, really fascinating case study in how powerful players, usually the US, can manipulate politics in other countries. So in 2006, the, uh, the leadership of Argentina said, no way in hell are we ever going to sign another agreement with the IMF. And then 10 years later, in 2016, they have a new president whose name was Macri, is a, basically a US puppet or a US sort of client and immediately jumped straight back into bed with another IMF loan and accepting the conditions imposed by the IMF. And of course, more recently, we've seen that uh, countries such as Greece uh, that have been involved in finance negotiations with both the IMF, but also uh, the European Central Bank and so on, have been forced to do austerity and it's had devastating consequences for the, the country's economy. But always when you have a government that imposes austerity, it's always the poorest people who suffer for the most. So social security benefits are cut and so on. Now, strangely enough, in 2016, even the IMF, that's the mainstream people in the IMF, came forward and admitted that austerity and the free movement of money actually cause more harm than any benefits they might create. So finally, some progress that even the most senior insiders have admitted that at least some of these policies are, uh, simply do not, do not work. Okay, so that's the World Bank and the IMF, a sort of brief summary. So the, the other institution that I want to talk about is the WTO, which is the World Trade Organization. And that was uh, another one of these organizations created in 1944, or it's the, the modern version of an organization created at Bretton Woods in 1944. And they claim to create a level playing field in global trade. But we've talked about this a little bit in earlier presentations where you start to realize you can't really have a level playing field when you start with great inequality. 
if you have gigantic global corporations backed by governments from America or Britain or Europe competing against small companies that are still developing technology, always the powerful players will win and the, the younger developing companies in poor countries that don't have the same support from their government will, will go bust sometimes overnight. And if you start to look at the small print that um, and WTO regulations, you start to realize the devil is in the detail. And so they have rules on subsidies. So how much can a government assist different companies? And you realize they're biased towards rich countries. So you can have subsidies for research, but you can't have subsidies to protect newly developing industries. So the, the research subsidies are very useful in advanced countries. The infant industry protection, the subsidies to help uh, developing industries would be really useful in a poor country, but they're not allowed to have them. So you start to realize the whole system is, is loaded in favor of rich countries. And again, if you look at the small print, you realize how absurd some of the rules are. So in 1944, the WTA was trying to decrease the amount of bureaucracy that exists at customs checks. And so they introduced a rule that says customs officials cannot challenge the declared values on imports and exports. Well, of course, that's just a license to commit fraud by any importer or exporter that is prepared to lie about the value of any of the goods that it imports and exports. And that enables powerful companies to, uh, to get away with not paying a lot of tax that they should be paying. Various researchers have studied how negotiations take place within the WTO. And it's based around a principle of trade-offs. So if a rich country says, hey, we'll, uh, we'll change these laws in our country, but as a trade-off, we want you and poor countries to change these laws, you start to realize that doesn't make sense when you start with existing imbalances in wealth and power. What should be happening is for rich countries to make concession after concession after concession to help poor countries. But that isn't the way the system, the system works. And also, there are, there are huge numbers of negotiations. So at the peak, there were over a thousand negotiating meetings per year. Now, a rich country can easily employ all the bureaucrats and all the legal experts it needs to attend a thousand meetings a year. But this is impossible for a poor country. Some of the poorest countries don't have a single permanent member of staff whose job is to negotiate at the WTO. So they just simply don't have the resources to engage in fair negotiations. And in fact, quite a lot of the negotiations take place in secret. So a small group of negotiators from advanced countries, so usually that's Europe and America, it can also include Japan and Canada and Australia and so on, they will meet in secret, they will determine policy, and then they will try and force poor countries to, to adopt those policies. So the WTO always claims that it's trying to help poor countries, but all the evidence indicates that actually in the real world, it's not doing that at all. It's all about helping rich countries exploit uh, poor countries. So Many of the rules that have been uh, created uh, as WTO rules were actually written by American corporate lawyers. So the rules on agriculture and trade and grain and so on were written by one of the world's biggest grain companies. That's a US company called Cargill. And the rules on intellectual property, uh, patents and so on, were initially drafted by Pfizer 
the uh, pharmaceutical company, which is becoming more and more notorious as uh, information about the way it's manipulated its vaccine trials uh, emerges in the United States. So uh, the WTO has um, what it calls expert panels of three experts who will uh, engage in, um, whenever there's a dispute between one country and a company, uh, there'll, there'll be a panel who make a judgment on whether or not the company is allowed to do what it wants to do uh, or whether laws are acceptable and so on. But in fact, various researchers have looked into this in great detail and they summarized them as follows. And I think uh, it's a little bit of a long quote, but I'm going to read it out in full because it's, it's worth sort of hearing exactly what goes on. Acting as the supreme global adjudicator, the WTO has ruled against laws deemed barriers to free trade. This forced Japan to accept greater pesticide residues in imported food. It has kept Guatemala from outlawing deceptive advertising of baby food. It has eliminated the ban in various countries on asbestos and on fuel economy and emission standards for motor vehicles. It has ruled against marine life protection laws and the ban on endangered species products. The European Union's prohibition on the importation of hormone-ridden U.S. beef had overwhelming popular support throughout Europe, but a three-member WTO panel decided the ban was an illegal restraint of trade. The decision on beef put in jeopardy a host of other food import regulations based on health concerns. The WTO overturned a portion of the U.S. Clean Air Act banning certain additives in gasoline because it interfered with imports from foreign refineries. So you start to realize that these people who are on these three-member panels determining what rules are acceptable and are not are trade experts. They're not experts in health or safety or the environment. And they have a bias against rules that are intended to protect health, safety or the environment. And penalties for poor countries, if they do not go along with these rulings, can be quite severe. And in fact, in the year 2000, the WTO actually ruled that US tax policy is unfair. Now, nobody realized that the WTO had this much power, that it was actually able to make rulings on the domestic policies of advanced nations. And so from that point onwards, a lot of people, even mainstream insiders, have questioned why an organization has that much power, because clearly this is undermining democracy. So there's a great question. Why do politicians agree to these policies? And in 1995, there's an American sort of consumer campaigner called Ralph Nader. And he actually offered $10,000 to any politician who would read the WTO agreement that American politicians were about to vote on. And in fact, one senator took up that offer. He read the whole thing and he answered some questions about it. So he demonstrated that he had read it. He had, had understood it and so on. And he was the one American politician who voted against it. So the point is the vast majority of politicians will never read these things. They're hundreds and hundreds of pages. Nobody really understands the details except a handful of corporate lawyers. Politicians vote for them because their most powerful lobby groups, the people who fund their political campaigns and so on, say, vote for this, it will be good for us. And many of these policies are really good for the rich and the powerful and really harmful to everyone else. And so you start to realize the WTO, well, one person who researched this actually commented and said, the WTO 
is the place where governments collude in private against their domestic pressure groups. So it's really a system that allows powerful players in each country to structure their economy in a way that works for them. So the three organizations we've talked about, the WTO, the World Bank and the IMF, are often nicknamed the unholy trinity. They're sort of interchangeable masks for a single system which is about the rights of people with money and the rights of big companies to go and control resources and dominate trade anywhere in the world. So some people describe them as sort of ministries of trade and finance for world government, where their focus is exclusively on corporate profits. So it's important to understand if we wanted to restructure the global system to focus, say, on food security, we could easily do that. But the people with power in advanced nations, particularly America, have no interest in doing that. They like structuring the global economy in a way that benefits uh, American companies and the wealthy and the powerful in advanced nations. So in recent years, various people have said, well, actually, the WTO is dying. There was a period from about 2001 to 2015 where negotiations have basically collapsed. Enough poor countries have realized they are simply being exploited through the WTO and they're resisting and they're trying to avoid um, signing up to any more agreements. So uh, the advanced nations were trying to include agreements on patents and services and investments, and poor countries have finally said no. And in fact, in May 2020, the head of the WTO resigned, saying that it's going nowhere. So it may ultimately be uh, a dead duck, as they say. But the, the mechanisms for enforcing the rights of companies to achieve their goals in other countries still exist in other forms. So there's something called the ISDS, which is the Investor State Dispute Settlement that still has these three-person panels and secret courts where a company can sue a government for potential lost future profits. Now, it's worth thinking about that phrase that I just said there, potential lost future profits. If a government introduces a law to protect the environment and Exxon comes along and says, well, hang on, I think that law is going to reduce our profits, we can sue that government for billions and billions of all the future profits that we might have made if that law had not been introduced. And so you start to realize it, they create this parallel legal universe that completely bypasses all normal democratic legal processes. And they get rulings that are in favor of big, uh, big companies. And the threat even of a company taking a government to these dispute settlement uh, procedures is actually enough to deter many governments in poor countries from going ahead and introducing new laws because they're afraid of getting sued uh, by big companies. So those are the three main organizations that I talk about generally. But the fact that we have those in, uh, institutions, and it's so clear, and it has been so clear for decades now, that they have a really negative effect on what really goes on in the world, despite always claiming that they're neutral and that they're trying to create things that are a win-win for everyone and they're trying to help the poor and so on, you start to realize that is all propaganda. Well, there are two other organizations that have come to the fore in the last few years that I'm just going to mention because they're becoming increasingly important. So one of them is the World Health Organization or the WHO. 
And in fact, a few months ago, I came across an excellent little documentary that's simply called Trust Who? Trust WHO, with a sort of question mark, about whether or not we should trust the World Health Organization. Last time I looked, it was quite hard to find that documentary. So it might require somebody who's very good at searching on the internet to find a source where you can still, um, still download it. But the whole point is the WHO is meant to be a, an advisory body that helps governments to understand what's sort of going on in terms of health processes around the world, particularly if you've got something that's described as a pandemic and perhaps to coordinate the actions of different governments when things get really severe. Unfortunately, it's become more and more clear that actually the WHO has been what we call captured by pharmaceutical companies. By captured, we mean they start to see the world from the point of view of the pharmaceutical companies. Their decisions are based on the requirements of the pharmaceutical companies, especially the big American ones like, like Pfizer and so on, but there are many others uh, too. Now, the problem with an advisory body uh, that deals with something like health is that if this advisory body declares a pandemic and say, hey, the, the sky is falling, uh, as happened with COVID, then governments find it very, very hard to ignore the advice. And they feel compelled to follow the advice being given by the WHO. But if that advice uh, is simply the recommendations of pharmaceutical companies, then it may not actually be very good advice. So we have to question the immense conflicts of interests that can exist when you have very, very powerful profit-seeking companies who have enormous influence over these global bodies. So you start to realize that, again, it's another situation where democracy can be undermined if democratically elected governments just hand power to an international organization of what we call technocrats, so supposed experts in a particular field, who then start dictating policy and governments feel that they cannot question it or cannot sort of choose an alternative approach. The other organization that I want to finish with tonight is NATO. Now, this has been in the news a little bit more because there is a war going on uh, in Ukraine. And we've talked about this on a previous week, but NATO started off as what was called a defensive military alliance. So you have to remember that uh, in the second half of the 20th century, there was a group of countries in Eastern Europe and Asia that we would call the Soviet Union. And uh, people in the West were worried that they might attack. I have talked about this on one occasion where I pointed out that actually the threat of an attack by the Soviet Union was always exaggerated. But putting that to one side, NATO came into being as an alliance between America and European countries. Uh, it's a, a defensive military alliance. So if one country is attacked, all the others will rally to their defense. Unfortunately, after 1989, when the Soviet Union disintegrated, there was no real purpose for NATO to continue existing, but it still does. And in fact, what happened in the 1990s was that NATO participated in the destruction of Yugoslavia. And in 2011, NATO also participated in the destruction of Libya. So NATO is no longer the defensive military alliance that it used to be. It's an offensive organization which uh, attacks other countries. And for any 
a military alliance to sort of serve a purpose, it requires enemies. But that means that actually America has a vested interest in trying to pretend that Russia and China and any other country uh, are enemies of NATO. And so America wants to expand NATO. It, it, uh, it's trying to introduce uh, Sweden and Finland into NATO at the moment, although uh, the last analysis I looked at was saying that Turkey is not playing ball with those negotiations. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. But the whole point is that if you keep expanding this military alliance closer and closer to Russia's borders, then Russia is going to feel more and more uh, threatened. And so it's, it's not going to lead to positive uh, outcomes. It would be far, far better to start saying, well, NATO really doesn't serve any useful purpose in the 21st century. What we should be trying to do is to create Europe and Asia, so European countries, Russia, China, and all the other European and Asian countries actually working together and cooperating to create a more peaceful and more prosperous situation in the future. So they have peace agreements and they have other agreements not to put weapons in different countries uh, and so on. Now, for a number of months, we've been told by the mainstream press that uh, uh, Ukraine is winning this war. Recently, mainstream German and American journalists have now started to admit that was all complete nonsense, that actually Russia has taken control of the parts of Ukraine that it wants to stabilize in the future. That will be eastern Ukraine and uh, the Crimea primarily. And whilst there's still lots of fighting, much of what's going on actually involves the Ukrainians simply targeting civilians to destroy areas that they know they will not be able to control uh, for very, very much longer. So we come back to NATO and the other organizations we've looked at. You start to realize that they function as extensions of the most powerful and most influential groups. Sometimes it's the US government, sometimes it's corporate groups, and they undermine democratic rights. And it's really important that people are aware that these organizations don't always have good intentions, that they can be hijacked by powerful interest groups. And it's something we need to be aware of uh, into the future. Okay, I think that's probably a good time to uh, open up for questions and uh, discussion. I hope the microphone worked throughout that. Yes, it was fine. Thanks, Rod. We had a little oh. bit of a blip, but it was fine. Well, it caught up. It? it got yeah, it caught up. Um, one of the one of the things I that I've I think it's over over the the lockdown and um, all these big contracts that the government were giving out um, for PPE and things like that. And, and things that um, Boris Johnson has said and his ministers have said about how, oh, it's up to the corporations what they do about it. It's up to the retail retailers if they allow people to uh, go into their shops and not wear masks. And um, there's been lots of little comments like this in the press that's made me think that, well, they're just handing they're just blatantly handing power over to the corporations now um do you think that's you know are you seeing that as well rod is it more in your face than it ever was so so i think with the regulations it, it's kind of it's kind of like one thing where uh, 
it's almost like uh, these international organizations kind of setting some advisory rules and then governments feeling they can't challenge them. You have governments domestically, so the British government, setting some guidelines, but then actually saying to companies, hey, it's up to you. But companies feel on the whole that they cannot um, avoid implementing the guidelines. They don't want to challenge the guidelines and so on. Um, but I, I don't think I see it really as governments handing power to companies. I'm always saying that I think companies have far too much power. The biggest companies have far too much power, but they always are working with the backing of governments. And so um, whilst it might superficially look like a government saying to companies, do this, do that, and it's kind of your decision and so on, uh, the, the governments are always there operating in the background uh, and they're always having quiet conversations with senior executives from the most important companies, you know, the banks and the tech companies and the pharmaceutical companies and so on. And we ne we're never privy to these conversations. But there's, there's no doubt that it's a it's a combination of government and powerful companies working together to achieve goals that they see are in their interests, mm -hmm. which often may not be in the interests of the vast majority of the population. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's lazy government as well, um, because they are not bothered about writing their own policies. They'd rather take the policies that they've been given by corporations and um, other organisations, and um, and and put those into legislation uh, rather well, than making legislation which is right for the people. That's a, that's a really good point, and in fact. You can see a sort of uh, trend over a long term trend. So in the past, if we go back, say, 50 years, governments used to have internal expertise in every important area. And so if, a, if, if they were sort of in negotiations with corporate lawyers, their own experts would know every bit as much about what was going on as the corporate lawyers would. Unfortunately, a lot of that expertise has deliberately been lost over the years. And governments, to some extent, are now dependent on corporate expertise in some areas to, to help them kind of with the legislation. And I think we saw this with, um, uh, with COVID, that I don't think the government really has that many people who are expert enough in what's going on with the spread of COVID and with the development of possible medicines to work against COVID. So they do defer to the pharmaceutical industry in relation to say uh, injections, call them vaccines if you want to, um, uh, and so on. And so in a sense, it, it's lazy government, but it's been a deliberate strategy over the years to get rid of in-house expertise in government. So they are dependent on corporate expertise which is wrong in my opinion you know like like you said it's it's eroding our democracy because we pay an awful lot of money to um, the civil service um, to provide all the necessary information to ministers to government to be able to form policies um, the that you know research that's done by our professors our academics in this country all of those things should be taken into consideration when forming new legislation not just taking something that's been given to them off the shelf by a technocrat or a, a you know a corporation 
Um, you know, yeah. it's, it's like out in the trade union movement. Um, I, as I people know, I used to work in the trade union movement and represent people um, who were um, having difficulties in work. And all of the employment legislation was set up to protect the corporations, not the employees. Um, yeah, the, the, it's I, all I the employers. I, and I think, and the, the drift is 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 more and more in the, what I would say is the wrong direction. Yeah. So it's it's creating. Uh, so I use the term power asymmetry. I talk about power quite a lot in that employers have too much power and employees have too little power, and that's again been a deliberate thing by um, the government, starting with uh, in the UK Margaret Thatcher and in America uh, Ronald Reagan to completely destroy the unions. And so they destroyed the miners' unions in, in Britain. They destroyed the air traffic controllers uh, in America. And there's been this steady process to destroy uh, union representation as, as much as they can uh, in, uh, in the two nations. And I think it's a terrible way to run a country. And I think we're going to start to see really serious negative consequences developing uh, in in the next few years, and I think it'll be even worse in America. I think inequality will be worse, poverty for the poorest people will be worse. We already have masses of people using food banks in both countries, and I, and I think that's only going to get worse. And at some point, we have to work out how do we're going to take back power. And that isn't just a question of kind of how do you find a political party that might represent ordinary people, but it's also a question of saying, how do we change the balance of power in negotiations with employers uh, and so on? So that employers don't have the right to fire and rehire everybody on worse terms and conditions whenever they feel like it and so on, because the long-term effect of that is simply going to be to wreck our societies. Yeah, which we've seen over the last 10, 20 years, haven't we? Um, I mean, the, this zero hours contract first came in um, when before my mum retired, mum's 80 this year. So um, that's over 20 years ago when they brought in the zero hours contracts. I know she finished her uh, contract at a retail store that she worked in for many years on a zero hours. They just just sort of brought those in. And that was under a Blair government. That was under a Labour government as well. So let's go to some uh, comments. Um, Ellie Green said, um, in her book, How the Other Half Dies, Susan George called IMF policies a financial low intensity conflict. That's that's a great summary. So um, I used to read a lot of work by uh, by Susan George, and she's absolutely right that, that these policies are intended just to make life steadily more and more difficult for the poorer half of the population wherever these policies are um, implemented. And um, just to, to link it back to, to current events, I may have mentioned this when we were talking about Ukraine some weeks ago, but people sometimes forget that in the 1990s, these same policies were applied in Russia by Western economic advisors. And those policies had absolutely devastating consequences. So life expectancy decreased. Tens of millions of people had their living standards dropped, so they ended up in, in poverty. And it was Putin who stepped in and rescued Russia from these terrible policies. Now, I'm not going to claim that Putin's a saint by any means, but he did recognize 
that in order to save Russia, he had to get rid of these economic policies. And he, any, any country that doesn't succeed in extricating itself from the IMF, the World Bank and the WTO is going to find itself uh, in difficulties uh, over and, and over again. Uh, you mentioned Africa earlier on, Rod, and um, what brought to mind was um, similarly, um, Gaddafi did this in Libya, didn't he? He he started to buy up lots of gold. Um, he introduced kind of a, a socialist society where people um, had free rent, they had free uh, fuel, gas, electricity, that kind of stuff, um, healthcare, and he was going to create a United States of Africa, uh, which was when the USA um, went in and took Gaddafi out. Have you got any further, anything further to say on that? So, so that's a really good point. So it's Libya is one of the things we talked about in uh, in the wars of kind of um, Cameron, Hillary Clinton, and, and Barack Obama uh, a while ago. But it's worth reiterating the point that Libya had by far the highest standard of any country in Africa. It had actually got to the point where it had just about reached first world living standards. Uh, it had created what some people had called the eighth wonder of the world, which is this incredible irrigation system. So you've got to remember much of the country is desert. But they'd actually worked out how to create an irrigation system that took water to all the parts that it needed to get to, to enable them to farm and so on. Uh, so his achievements were quite remarkable. And as you say, he was trying to create something like a United States of Africa. Very specifically, he wanted to create an African currency, which would mean that anything exported from Africa, so it could be oil or gas or minerals, gold, diamonds and so on, would be traded in this currency rather than either the US dollar or the sort of French come European currency that still dominated in those uh, African countries that had formerly been French colonies. And it was probably his goal of creating this replacement currency that would be the main worry of American planners. So if you watch the mainstream news talking about Libya, you won't hear any of this. They'll all just say things like, oh, he was bad, he was evil, he was the this. part, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All the standard things that we hear about Putin and we heard about Saddam Hussein. And it's all of this kind of caricature, this comic book caricature stuff to try to justify uh, invasions. But in fact, he, what he did in, in Libya was quite a remarkable achievement. Uh, and, and people should be talking about it and studying it, it much, much more. He was actually showing to other poor countries, this is how you can become an advanced nation without allowing yourself to be exploited by American companies and European companies and so on. Yeah, I'd like to uh, I'd like to find out more about that. Actually, maybe that's something we could do uh, in a future episode. Is to is to find out more. I know um, Dave Roberts, who's um, in the Resist movement. He I think he actually went out to Libya at some point, um, and um, he was shown around all the things that they were they were actually doing over there. Um, so that would be interesting to talk to Dave on that. Um, actually, John says I'm not quite sure what he's getting at in this first question. He says, um, well, number one. All this is a form of criminality. I've been since COVID wondering of technocrats involved running off and regulating ideas formed in the historic past. The bureaucrats too. Well, I think he's just saying that what we're talking about is, or should be in a reasonable society, um, serious crimes. 
And yeah. I would I would agree with that. And what you start to realize is most people, once they stop and think about it for a few seconds, realize that when Britain and America destroy Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and Syria with bombs and missiles and so on, that's probably a war crime. Right. But what they don't understand is that even more important than all of those war crimes is the rigging of the global economic systems to transfer wealth from poor people to rich people and from poor countries to rich countries. And it creates immense harms. And what I was saying about, say, food security uh, in the presentation, in that lots of people die every year from malnutrition for various reasons. They just are not getting uh, the right sort of diet in sufficient quantities uh, and so on. Creating um, a trade system which allowed everybody to get all the, the nutrition they need is incredibly easy. You know, the world produces far more food in total than we actually need to, to feed everybody. Um, and we could easily come up with ways to get it to those people who need it. Even if there's a drought in some countries, we can create ways that they have food stores and we can move it around the world and so on. But the problem is the people with power create an economic system where the people who are poor just do not matter. And in fact, Noam Chomsky used to talk about this quite, quite a lot when he's talking about people who die in war zones or people who starve. But as far as decision makers in America and Britain and France are concerned and so on, these people are no different from cockroaches. You know, if they die... The, the rich and the powerful couldn't care less. And I think we really do need an entirely different breed of politicians in advanced nations who recognize that actually treating these people like human beings instead of like co cockroaches is what will enable us to have a thriving society in the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and the more power and the more money you've got, you know, we, we can't take them on, you know, and it's as simple as that. I mean, you know, I've talked about my, again, I'm going back to, you know, my own experiences. Um, but, um, you know, I've spoken about, I've been quite open about the uh, the troubles I had with the Israeli lobby. Um, and um, they had power and money behind them. Um, I couldn't financially... Um, Come, I, I couldn't financially take them to court. It wasn't, you know, it's just not doable. Um, I would love to have taken the Sunday Times to court. I haven't got the money to do it. So, that, you know, we, it seems to me, our, um, our justice system um, needs a massive overhaul. Um, hi. Um, our justice system needs a massive overhaul and we need to, to get sorted. Um, the um, you know the we need to get sorted the the money for pe ordinary people um, to be able to take these big um, companies to court um, you know rather than having to rely on um, the gratuity of, of a decent lawyer uh, or or charity you know charity um, it's just wrong and it needs overhauling um, actually John also goes on to say um, Rod have you seen viewed the 1967 film The President's Analyst starring James Coburn all the answers are at the conclusion recommended heartily I'm going to go away and look for that now John I'll have to do the same funny enough I was watching an old James Coburn movie just last week but it wasn't that one so 
of the President's Analyst. I'll make a note of that. We'll, uh, yeah, 1967. Yeah. Um, Kevin Rathbone says that the countries that we think of as poor countries are really just being ripped off left, right and centre by this lot Rod is talking about. We are the main facilitators of all this theft in the city. And I think you mean the city of London. Absolutely. You know, it's supposed to be the biggest money laundering centre in the world, isn't it? Uh, very much so, yeah. And I think it's it's really interesting how the the presentation of all these things in the mainstream media and what really goes on in the real world are so completely different. And and every any any time you watch the mainstream, you'd have the impression that hey, British and American leaders, they're nice guys, they're doing their best. It's difficult sometimes. And what you realise is it the whole thing is really just either criminal or unethical behavior. And, and I sometimes say to people, even the, the distinction between criminal and unethical behavior is this enormous gray area. I'm writing something at the moment, which is what happens when the biggest criminals write the laws? And so you've got all these acts that in a reasonable society would be considered incredibly serious crimes. Yeah. So all our senior politicians would be in jail. All of our senior executives would be in jail. But because they write the laws or they manipulate the laws or they take international law and don't implement it domestically in Britain or America, none of them goes to jail. None of them is even prosecuted or very rarely are they prosecuted. And, yeah. and so you, you start to realize we have just created what is essentially a criminal system. Yeah, well, at the moment, the Tories are trying to rip up our um, human rights bill, aren't yeah. they? Isn't that amazing? So the funny thing was, I was trying to explain to somebody the other day that the Labour Party have basically become a completely ineffective opposition. That's that, you know, right now, that's how how they are under Keir Starmer's uh, leadership. And you look at what I would consider to be an insane policy like ripping off our human rights or another insane policy like sending asylum seekers to Rwanda. And it should be a no-brainer that every politician in the Labour Party is screaming from the rooftops to oppose these policies. But of course, that's not happening because we don't really have a functioning democracy in Britain at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's. Uh, we've got lots more questions here. Let's see if we can fire through them. Um, Ellie Green. Oh, hang on. Uh, where were we? Um, we've done Kevin's. Uh, Shirley Lysat said, um, was it Doris? Uh, I think Nadine Doris, who said that they have to check with donors over some policy or other. I must Sh have missed that. So it's, it's perfectly possible. I haven't seen that, that particular quote. Yeah, you'll have to give us more information on that, Shirley. That would be quite interesting to look into a bit more. Um, Ellie Green over on Facebook says Trans transnational companies, uh, TNCs, have had way more power than governments over the past 40 years. So can I can I just kind of res respond to that? Because quite a lot of people have written books, some academics have written books about the power of transnational companies. And they give the impression that the companies are separate from the governments of advanced nations. But this is not the case. The transnational companies have the power internationally, so in other countries, because they have the active support of the governments of the most powerful countries. Particularly, they have the support of the US government. And what we've seen over the last 75 years, so since the end of World War II, uh, in fact, well before World War II, um, is that whenever... A powerful enough company cannot get its own way in a poor country. It calls in the US government 
to try and change the government in the poor country. And uh, the people who've heard all of my presentations will remember that back in uh, one of the early ones, which was about the US government is the biggest criminal organization in the world. There's a great quote which was written in about 1933 by an American Marine Corps general called Smedley Buckler. And he wrote a book called War is a Racket. And he'd been, uh, as part of the US Marine Corps, fighting wars in country after country after country. And in every case, he explained he had been doing it on behalf of American corporate interests and that war is just an extension of corporate power. And so it's really important not to think of companies as having taken over from governments. Companies only have the power they have because they are backed by the governments of advanced nations. And if the governments of advanced nations wanted to rein them in, they could do so quite easily. They don't want to rein them in because they feel it's useful to have them to, to control other countries. Absolutely. And yes, the, the money thing is incredibly important. So we've talked about funding of political parties. And again, you see it more in America than anywhere else, but it's happening here too, that you have big American companies paying millions of dollars to fund politicians from both major parties. It doesn't matter which party gets into power, the policies will work for those companies. Absolutely. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. <laughs> um. Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez says that and she got into uh, a lot of trouble um, about it. I um, thought you were going to say she's just posted. No, no, not not today, no. <laughs> she must still be asleep. Um, Forrest Khan says, um, where can I post questions? Faraz, you posted it in the right place. So if you post questions in the chat, we will get them. Who are they you keep talking about? Well, um, I think you need to uh, rewind, may, maybe go and rewatch because Rod actually talks about um, the WHO, um, who is the, the World Health Organization. Um, and tonight we've also been talking about the IMF, the International Monetary Fund and NATO. Who else? Uh, WTO, the World Trade Organization. We've, we've talked about quite a lot of different organisations tonight. So if you do a rewind, you will catch um, what, uh, what can, has been talked about. Can I just comment on that? I think you might be asking, who is it who's kind of wanting to exploit poor countries? So if, if people have missed earlier things about US foreign policy, which we've talked about over the months, all of these, the three financial organisations, so the World Bank, the IMF and the WTO, they're extensions of US foreign policy. And so what I talk about is the most powerful decision makers in the United States. So that would be the senior politicians, the senior bureaucrats who we tend not to see because they're behind the scenes, but they're just as important as politicians in making decisions and the senior executives of the biggest companies. And they together form like a state within a state. Uh, particularly in the United States, but you'd have something similar operating in, in Britain where there's a lot of sort of uh, secret discussions behind the scenes and they make most of the policy and they are the ones who determine whether or not they want to overthrow the government of Venezuela, whether or not they want to overthrow the government of Pakistan, whether or not they want to provide weapons to Ukraine and so on. Yeah, I mean, indeed, Pakistan is a really good one. I don't think we've we've actually brought this subject up um, since it's happened. But uh, Imran Khan was overthrown, wasn't he, um, by yeah. the US. Um, and they've installed um, um, a government who are led by people who are 
actually out on bail at the moment or, or pending trial or something like that disgusting um we're, we're right at the top of the hour i just want to squeeze in two more um from shirley um she says a question to everyone really do the public at large now accept the conflict in ukraine is russia defending themselves I think they do. Um, and she also then just goes on quickly to say, uh, Julian Assange is, is only abused, is only abused, terrorised and kidnapped to keep the military industrial complex wheels turning. Um, they're making his abuse public too. I totally agree with that. Just so quickly, Rod. I'll just do those quickly. So it's great to mention Julian Assange because yeah. he's forever being persecuted and it really is important. We keep trying to work together to try and get him released as soon as possible. The Ukraine thing is interesting because I talk to lots of ordinary people and they've fallen for the, the mainstream propaganda hook, line and sinker. So it may be the case that more and more of them are starting to work out what's really going on in the same way that if you look at the number of people who took, say, booster shots relative to the first line of vaccinations, more people are questioning them. People gradually wake up, but I think still the majority buy into the mainstream narrative on, uh, on Russia and, and Ukraine from what I've seen. But certainly in other countries, particularly uh, Germany, I've definitely seen more critical commentary in the mainstream press. But I haven't, I haven't yet sensed that happening in, uh, in Britain. No, because we have to keep up this um, facade that it's worth us sending all our billions of pounds over there to, uh, to help the, the the winning side which i think everyone is starting to realize they're not um and it's uh, and they're just our bombs are uh, just destroying um civilians in the in the donbass um I was, I was watching a report by patrick lancaster yesterday and they've um there's very small villages in the donbass who are coming under incredibly intense shelling at the moment there's no military there there's absolutely no reason for ukraine to be uh targeting them there's no uh people's uh people's republic there there's no russians there there was no reason for them to be shelled and yet they're you know, the, there was two people killed yesterday, just sat outside a, um, like a, a roadside cafe bar, um, having a, a drink on a nice day. Um, no military there whatsoever. Um, that, can I just finish off by saying that is consistent with the other independent reporters that I read who are also there. And that from the interviews they're doing with other people and so on, they believe that basically the Ukrainians have accepted they are going to lose and they're just doing as much damage as possible be before it's over. Yeah, because these are just small rural communities with, you know, hardly anybody living there. Um, they, you know, they're just like trying to scrape a li living on their their um, um, on their their own land. You know, maybe with a the odd cow and vegetables and all the rest of it. It's uh, it's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. Anyway, Rod, we've reached the end of our show after our hip hiccup at the beginning. Thank you again so much for coming back. I hope we'll uh, talk again soon um, when you've done some uh, more research. Um, I want to thank everybody for joining in uh, the chat this evening and for watching us. Um, thank you so much. Chris will be back here next week and uh, just watch social media. We'll tell you who he's got coming on and we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Yeah.